It is true that we are bound for the promised land. Amen. I was singing that song, and I, the question was asked, when do I get to rest my head in my father's bosom? And I was reminded of the joy and the pleasure of just being close to my own children. And I so want to see Jesus face to face. At the same time, we know we have some difficult days that we must pass through before we do get to see him face to face. So let's pray and ask the Lord for his help this morning, and then we will, we will get to work. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Jesus' instruction and teaching to us. We thank you, Father, for his courage and his fearlessness in facing all those who would oppose the goodness and the beauty of your truth. Lord, we embrace the Son. We say hallelujah to the King, and we welcome his return. With the Apostle John in the book of Revelation, we say, Lord, come quickly. We want you to come quickly. But we also know, Lord, that you have purposed for your people to go through difficult days, days of darkness, days of persecution, days of hatred, as your word says. Lord, none of us relish the thought of being hated or persecuted or being betrayed. Yet we know these things must happen, that all this will take place according to your word. And so as we look this morning, Father, at your word, we pray, God, that you would forewarn us and that your spirit would strengthen us for that coming day. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. There are many suggestions regarding the first moment of apostasy. Who was the first? Who was the individual who first stepped away from the Lord, who first turned his back on the Lord? There are examples, in fact, within the New Testament. You don't have to look at the early church fathers. You don't have to look at early church history. There are many names provided for us in the scriptures. A lot of individuals will turn to Damas. He was one of the associates of the Apostle Paul, but it wasn't Damas. In fact, it's before Damas. Indeed, the first apostate that we encounter within the scriptures is none other than Judas Iscariot. In John 18, the mob comes, having been led there by Judas, to the Garden of Gethsemane to arrest Jesus. As the mob approaches, we find Christ there in the garden with his apostles, his 11 disciples, praying and preparing himself spiritually for the physical suffering and the ordeal that is about to come upon him. And as they approach, Jesus, knowing what would happen to him, comes forward and he addresses the mob and in John 18 says, whom do you seek? They answered him, we seek Jesus of Nazareth, to which Jesus replied, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. Notice that. Judas, who betrayed Jesus, was standing with the armed mob, the company of soldiers and all those who accompanied them. Verse 6 makes an interesting statement. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and they fell to the ground. When you read that verse, you think that maybe something supernatural happened. And indeed, it was supernatural. You get this idea that some unseen force, some supernatural power just pushed them back. And as they were pushed back, they fell to the ground. But a closer reading of the text 
says that that's not what actually happened. They did fall to the ground, and indeed, there is something supernatural about this, but the statement is, they drew back. It's an active verb. It's not a passive action. When Jesus says, I am the one you are seeking, something took place in their souls and in their hearts. As they are confronting the majesty of the divine, they take a step back. Perhaps in their shuffle, they stumbled over each other and fell to the ground. Perhaps something supernaturally did overtake them and they fell down. But that first response, that first action is this. Having encountered Jesus, they stood away from him. They took a step back. And this statement is preceded by the statement that Judas, one of Jesus' own disciples, was not with Jesus and was not standing together with the apostles. He was standing with the armed mob. That's the nature of apostasy. Jesus, in his word this morning, in the Olivet Discourses, he's been talking to the disciples about the signs that they can anticipate the end of the world. One of those signs is this. We will experience within the church, within our company, within our fellowship, we will experience individuals who will make a choice to stand apart and more. Our text this morning begins with this statement, they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. This is nothing new. We've been experiencing this. The church has been persecuted throughout the history of its existence. There is persecution happening all over the world today. There are many countries that are closed countries where if you go there as a Christian and openly confess the name of Jesus Christ, you will be imprisoned, you will be tortured, and worse, there are countries in the world today where if you confess the name of Jesus Christ, you will be murdered because... Because, as Jesus says here, they will hate you, not because of who you are, but because of the name of Jesus Christ that you profess. Verse 9, they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Being persecuted by the world is one thing, but one of the signs that the end is approaching is being hated by those who would consider themselves Christians and who would call themselves followers of Jesus, who call themselves that, but are not actually that. Look at the passage, verse 10. Jesus makes the statement, and then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. Now, the first verse is said that the world will hate you. For the name of the Lord, for the sake of his name. We understand that. The next verse says, and many will fall away. They will fall away. Now, as you encounter this verse here, you are presented with the idea that this group of individuals are somehow followers of Christ, at least they claim to be followers of Christ. They have given some indication that they worship Jesus. They have given some idea, some profession that they hold on to Christ. And as the ESV translates it for us this morning, you then get this idea that having grasped a hold of Jesus, having grabbed onto him, something has happened and they have let go and they have, as the text says this morning, they have fallen away. 
It sounds as though they just couldn't hold on. It sounds as though, as a result, perhaps, of the pressures of the world, that there was this moment of decision where they said, I just, I can't do this anymore because of how difficult it is. And so they fall away. But look at what the rest of the verse says. Look closely. In verse 10, many will fall away and betray one another. Now, this is why I want you to consider carefully the text this morning. The, the Greek word here is apostasign, from which we get the modern-day word apostasy. It's in the infinitive, which means that uh, it's not actually trying to connote or denote an action. So they're saying that this individual just falls away. But it's not simply a passive act of just letting go and falling away. The true nature of this particular word is that they choose to stand apart. They're making a moral choice for which they are accountable. Identical choice to the one that Judas made. He said, I don't know, preacher. Look closely. Many will fall away. It's not simply a, okay, you know, it's tough being a Christian, so I'm not going to be a Christian anymore. They take it another step. They fall away and they betray one another and they hate one another. Those are active verbs. Those are actions that they are taking as a result of their falling away. I want you to flip with me really quick. We need to consider carefully what's going on here. Go to Hebrews chapter 3. The author of the book of Hebrews is writing to a group of Christians, most likely Jewish believers who have converted to Christ, but who are experiencing pressure from their Jewish family, perhaps, and are being encouraged, pressured to abandon Christ and to return back to the Jewish system of worship, temple observance and sacrifice and all of that. The author of Hebrews is writing to this group of Christians, encouraging them to hold firm to Christ. He makes this statement. Look with me in Hebrews chapter 3. He begins in verse 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. Notice that. They always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Verse 12, here is the application to that scripture. They have always gone astray in their hearts. Verse 12, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you, and you'll notice the ESV translate the same verb the same way, to fall away, making it sound like it's a passive sort of you're just relaxing and letting go. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. And again, the word there is apostine, from which we get apostasy. Another way to understand this verse is, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to commit yourself to the act of apostasy, apostatizing from God. To stand apart. This combination of two words, histamine and apa, histamine to cause oneself to stand or to cause oneself to be an apa from or away from, 
literally to cause oneself to part from or to stand apart from someone else. That's what the verse means here. It's not a passive decision. It's an active choice. The same author says that it's possible within the company of the church, within our fellowship, to have individuals who are outwardly professing Christ and maybe even to a certain extent are self-deceived about their love for Christ, but they have not truly surrendered to Jesus. Now, you're right there in Hebrews. Don't, don't flip away. Turn over to chapter 6 now, verse 4. Going on a little bit more detail, the author of Hebrews tells us that these individuals are not committed followers of Jesus, though they may think that they are, but they are actually committed to something else. In Hebrews 6, 4, he says, It is impossible in the case of those who, having once been lightened, who, having once tasted the heavenly gift, and having shared in the Holy Spirit, and having tasted the goodness of the Word of God, and the powers of the age of come, of the age to come, and then have fallen away, same word right there as what we've seen so far, apostime, have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. Now the author says they started off good, they were part of the church, but it says once they've made this choice, once they've chosen to stand apart, having tasted and partaken of all of these blessings that we encounter within the company of the redeemed, once they make that choice, the author of Hebrews says it's impossible to restore them again. Now, there's a lot more that can be said about this verse. And I'm sure many of you are eager for me to say it. For our purposes this morning... I'm not going to unpack for you all of the spiritual realities of apostasy and what that looks like and how that happens. It's important to note that the scriptures speak about it and that as the church enters into the final days, Christ suggests that it will become regular, common occurrence within the church. Look back at Matthew chapter 24. He makes the statement, then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And then verse 11 goes a step further. and He says, many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. While not attempting to exhaustively pick apart every detail of apostasy, we can come to two conclusions. Apostasy is a choice that is made by individuals who are not totally sold out to Jesus Christ and who have not fully surrendered their heart to Christ. Apostasy is cultivated. It is cultivated in the hearts of individuals who having made an initial profession of faith in Christ, although they have not totally surrendered, it is cultivated by false teaching which leads to wrong believing. And this is something that is routinely taught throughout the scriptures. There were always from day one false teachers, false prophets who opposed the message of the gospel. And the scriptures warn us against that. The Bible here in chapter 24 says that there will be many false prophets, many false teachers. I'm going to give you three examples in order to be aware and to be forearmed against them. The first one is the most obvious one, the heretic. The heretic is perhaps the most common individual mentioned throughout the New Testament. 
If you've been attending with us on Sunday evenings, worshiping together with us, you will know that Pastor, Pastor Al has been preaching through First and Second Peter, and Peter warns us of the reality of false teachers. In Second Peter chapter 2, Pastor Al preached on this not too long ago, false prophets also will arose among the people just as there will be false teachers among you. He's saying in the history of Israel, they had false prophets, and just like they had false prophets, you, the church, in the present day, you will have false teachers. It's just going to be a fact of life. It says those false teachers will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. This is a foregone conclusion. If Jesus says this is a reality, then it's something we can expect to see, although we pray we never see it here at First Baptist. The heretic is most likely a gregarious, charming figure. He's good with words. He's smooth in his speech. He's adept at leading people into error by disguising the error. To teach heresy is to teach that which directly contradicts the Scriptures. From the church's earliest days, she's been afflicted by the heretic, He continues even today. Sometimes this happens by contradicting the truth. Sometimes the heretic operates by adding to the truth. Jude is clear. We have been given the faith once and for all time. Jude verse 3. The heretic operates by dissecting it, dividing it, emphasizing one part over against another, or he will add additional things to it. Arius did it in the 3rd century by distorting the doctrine of the Trinity. It's the same as the oneness Pentecostals do today. Many, like Marcus Borg and other prominent scholars today, will do it by denying fundamental truths that the Scriptures clearly affirm, such as the virgin birth or even the resurrection. Like Jehovah's Witnesses, the heretic may alter God's finished word, or like the Mormons, may add to it. These are two groups that we would say clearly are denying Jesus Christ through their abuse of the Scriptures. The first one that we have to be aware of is the heretic, and that's not hard to do so long as we have a Bible in our hands. The second one, the tickler. Now, the tickler is a little bit more subtle. He's going to be a false teacher who doesn't really care for what God wants, but he desires the praise and the applause of men. He is a man-pleaser rather than a God-pleaser. And he is going to tell you what you want to hear. Paul warns in 2 Timothy 4, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound doctrine, sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions who will turn away from listening to the truth and will wander off into myths. The tickler craves popularity, and he craves your praise. And therefore, he will tell you what is most agreeable rather than telling you the truth. We saw this in the 19th century with preachers such as Henry Ward Preacher. We've seen it in the 20th century with preachers such as Norman Vincent Peale, Robert Schuller, and I can multiply names. Now we're getting a little bit more subtle, though. Probably the most subtle false teacher or false prophet of all is what I would like to call the innovator. He innovates. He's obsessed with 
novelty, originality. He engages in speculation. He says, yes, yes, here's what the Word of God says, but he will draw you into these random, convoluted, uh, obscure passages, ignoring the rest of Scripture. He will unbalance the Word of God to give priority to certain passages that the Scriptures will minimize. He will make the main things secondary, and he'll make secondary or even third things the main thing. He will innovate. The author of this book, Hebrews, warned us of strange teachings in Hebrews chapter 13. And Paul also warned us against it in 1 Timothy 1.3. He told Timothy to protect the church against any different doctrine. And again, we have from Jude 3, the clear statement of the faith that has been once and for all delivered to the saints. The goal of the preacher is not novelty or innovation. The goal is faithfulness to what has been written This leads to wrong believing. Wrong teaching cultivates wrong believing. And for an individual who is deceiving himself about his commitment to Christ and is not totally surrendered to Jesus in his heart, the false teacher provides just the opening that this individual is looking for to allow their soul to wander off into these dark and false beliefs. I'm going to, just for a moment, comment on what we see happening here in the Western Hemisphere today, although it's not just restricted to us. You see this happening all over the world. There is now a global movement, and it's very, very prominent in the States, and it's sweeping Canada as well, that challenges and confronts any normal ethic of sexuality. The Bible is very clear. I'm going to read you the scripture, and then I'm going to walk you through how this happens. In 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 and 10, Paul, writing to the church at Corinth, makes the statement, Do you not know, this is a rhetorical question, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. The Bible is clear. To become a follower of Jesus Christ is going to require the renouncing of certain sinful practices. And yet what we see all too often is Christians marching in favor of things like the gender non-specific bathroom, where public washrooms are no longer associated with boys and girls, but now it's a free-for-all where you can go to any bathroom that you feel like identifying with. As a father of two young girls, I absolutely am appalled and horrified at the notion of going down to the park, knowing full well that for a five-year-old, bladder control is an issue, and she's going to have to go to the bathroom at some point in time, and yet I wonder who will be in there waiting for her. You see this taking root in legislation being passed in the States. You see it also taking root in legislation being proposed here in Canada. Christians supporting this 
And the question is, you know, the Bible says clearly male and female, he created them. Our gender is a part of our unique person whom God made us to be. How can you march in defiance of the personhood that God has bestowed? To which this is the response. I call it the art of pious ignorance. This is the stance that is all too often given to us from so-called Christian brothers and sisters who stand in support of gender nonspecific or transgenderism. It insists that all the relevant biblical passages on a stated subject are exegetically confusing and therefore unclear. And therefore, because they are unclear, we cannot know the mind of God on that particular subject. They will even say, I am the one being humble right now. There's nothing humble about reading God made them male and female. God made them female and male. He created them that way. That that is simple, clear, and direct. It is not humility to say, I don't really know what God means when he says that. That is an attempt at games to deny the clear and straightforward word of God. That's not humility. They say because we cannot know, because the passages are confusing, we cannot come to any conclusions. So pious ignorance is what is practiced today. They claim piety while also saying that they cannot know what God is saying. For example, in a recent article and a book along the same lines David, by David Gushi, a noted and even a brilliant evangelical scholar, he argues that items such as homosexual marriage, transgenderism, and gender identity and gender nonspecific identity should be placed among the things over which we as Christians are free to disagree. Now, we can't have any absolute certainty. As I already alluded to, this has resulted in Christians marching in support of these types of things. 1 Corinthians says, do not be deceived. Those who practice these activities will not go to heaven. So we see a drift into apostasy. But it doesn't start there. That's just the outward manifestation of it that is taking place today. It doesn't start there. You say, well, where does it start, preacher? How about the publishing ventures of the so-called Christian community. Zondervan recently released a book called Two Views on Homosexuality, the Bible, and the Church. It's one of these books where you have people who take up different positions and they look at these different positions and they'll argue. they say, you can be a Christian and hold to this, and it's a different view from this other view. And sometimes those books can be incredibly helpful. So Zondervan recently published Two Views on Homosexuality, the Bible, and the Church. The book bills these two views as the affirming and the non-affirming view, and there are two, two scholars that support each side. Both sides, we are told, argue from the Scripture. If the affirming side was once viewed as a stance that could not be held by confessional evangelicals, then this book published by Zondervan declares that not only the non-affirming stance but also the affirming stance are represented within what is considered acceptable Christianity or the evangelical camp. Of course, in response to this, I could say, you know, the Jehovah's Witnesses also argue from Scripture. 
but we would all agree that their exegesis is woefully inadequate. I've read this book, and I cannot help but chuckle at the arguments that are made, and I cannot help but wonder if anyone should look at these passages as they allude to and read them in context. How in the world could they ever think that this was a legitimate position? But you see, here's what's happened. When you present a Christian company publishing literature like this, it's opening the door to where we say, yes, we can actually maybe have different ideas on these things. Yes, maybe God's word isn't clear. So it starts with a questioning of Scripture. And you say, yes, that's right, preacher. That's where it starts. No, that's actually not where the seeds of apostasy start. The seeds of apostasy can start right here in a conservative church like this one, right here at First Baptist Church, with a mistake that I make and which, for some of us, you might embrace It's what I would call an embarrassment of my heart before certain passages of Scripture. I can't recall ever actually saying this, but I don't doubt that I probably have at some point in time. Let's say, for example, we're preaching through the Word of God and we come to a passage that mentions hell. And so my duty to the Lord is to preach to you a message about hell. And as I introduce the topic, I stand up before you and I say, now listen, everybody, the Bible talks about hell, and so I have a job to do, I have an obligation to do. I want you to know that I'm going to do my job, I'm going to be faithful to the Lord, I'm going to preach the Bible, I'm going to talk to you about hell this morning, but just between you and me, I personally find this subject distasteful, and I don't like it, and I wish I didn't have to preach on it, and I wish there was no such thing as hell. Now, I can't recall ever actually saying that, but I wouldn't doubt it if I did. I I know I've heard preachers introduce the topic that way, and I've always thought that's a good way of gently introducing a difficult subject. But as I've reflected on it, it's duplicitous. It's hypocrisy. Jesus talked about hell more than anyone. And if you go back and you read all of the Gospels and you, talk, and you read through all of the different instances in which Christ taught on hell, you'll notice he never introduced it that way. When I suggest, if I suggest to you that this is a distasteful topic and I wish we didn't have to talk about it and I wish we didn't have to look at these things, but we do, I have with my lips honored the Lord But with my heart, I am far from him. I am suggesting to you in that moment that, yes, what God's word says is true, but we are still free at the raw emotional level to say that somehow we are more loving, more caring, more compassionate, or more kind than Jesus Christ, which is a lie And also wicked. If I introduce the topic in that way, it is because I am on a raw emotional level embarrassed about what my father says. That gives cover to those of us in this room who do not want to agree with the scriptures. And so while we say, yes, here's what the Bible says, we're still free emotionally to reject it. See, apostasy starts 
in the heart. And we know that this type of preaching is quite common. That's where it starts. And so as you look back at the text, Jesus makes this statement, Then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another, and many false prophets will arise and they will lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. That word love is an emotional word. It encompasses both the intellect as well as the heart. It is a choice, an action based upon what you value, what you determine is good and beautiful and true. It is also a word that encompasses the emotions and the feelings of your soul. And Jesus' statement is that when lawlessness is increased, there is a pressure that is placed upon the church. When the open preaching of rebellion and the advocation of sin is done in the church, it has a spiritual impact upon us here where our love grows cold. And that can mean a couple of different things. It can mean us not wanting to believe certain things are true. It can mean us not feeling joyful heart love for the Lord. When lawlessness is increased, the love of many grows cold. And that is a subtle thing that can happen even here. So how do we gird ourselves against this departure? How do we ensure that none of us here are being tempted to potential apostasy? Go back to Hebrews chapter 3. Verse 12 says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Verse 13 gives the prescription. It says, Exhort one another every day as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. The remedy to apostasy is the fellowship of doctrinally grounded brothers and sisters who aren't afraid to say, hey, how are you doing? Who aren't afraid to ask the pointed question, how are you believing? And to take it a step further, How are you doing hoping in the one who can save you? As we go forward, we're going to see much, much more of this in the world. Hatred of Christians, hatred for you, hatred for me, persecution, ostracism. The ridicule and the mockery is just the beginning. How will we exhort and encourage each other? Two solutions. Involvement in a small group or a care group of some form where you can share about those moments in which you have been persecuted, in which you have encountered ridicule or mockery, and you can be encouraged by your friends, by your brothers and sisters in this church. A second solution is one that we have been hammering the drum for the last four or five weeks now, making sure that we are girding ourselves with biblical truth and sound doctrine participating in a tenant talk on Sunday morning. A number of individuals have stood up and shared with you, hey, come to my tenant talk. I'm talking about rocks or whatever. And that's interesting stuff. What they don't tell you is that we've been digging in and researching for the last almost two months now. They've been writing furiously. And oh, by the way, tenant talk teachers, your manuscripts are due this Thursday for review. 
They're like cringing. Oh, no. Yeah, it's time. We're doing our job making sure that what we're saying is totally grounded in the Scriptures, completely accurate and true. Because we want to build deep into your soul a bulwark against any temptation to unbelief. Faith is reasonable. Faith is sound. And what God says is true. We want to put that deep down in our hearts and hide it away as a bulwark against the coming suffering. When Jesus says to the mob, I am he, they take a step back. They stand apart. And yet we notice there that there are still 11 who stand together with him. As we enter dark and uncertain times, church, listen, there will be people, even within this church, who will take a step back and who will choose to stand apart. That is not necessarily a moment for discouragement. Although I've been there, I have observed individuals who have taken a step back who said, I'm not going to do this anymore. And it does hurt. It does discourage. But it makes the fellowship of those who remain so much sweeter. When you band together with each other, in the face of people walking away, in front of persecution, in the midst of ridicule. When you band together, there is a bond that is forged there, which if you've ever tasted it, if you've ever experienced it, you know it to be one of the sweetest and greatest treasures of Christ given to his church. We call it koinonia fellowship. Jesus is dragged off He's taken before Pontius Pilate. Pilate says, tell me the truth. Are you or are you not a king? Jesus' response to Pilate. He says, I am a king. You say that I am a king, and it is for this purpose that I was born, and it is for this purpose that I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. We have an opportunity to become children of truth and to listen carefully to the voice of Jesus. And as we do that, we stand together with Christ. And I just invite you, First Baptist Church, take this opportunity to stand with Christ. Let's bow forward of prayer. Father, we love you and we thank you for your word. We know, Lord, that this is a difficult teaching. Father, we say that not out of any displeasure or any desire to stand above the text or to speak in a condescending way about what you say, but Lord, we just freely confess to you, Lord, that this word reveals to us something that is dark in us, where we would love the world and we would have fear of man rather than fear of God, where we would want to cherish and hang on to our friends even as they are walking away from you we would value their company over the company of your Son and the presence of your Spirit together with your people. That's what makes this difficult for us, Lord. Not that there's anything unkind or unloving about what you say, but that you are exhorting us to stand together with those who truly love you. I pray, Father, that you would give us the endurance that you talk about here in this passage, the endurance to persevere until the end. And Lord, we know that you do give us that endurance. Help us to tap into it, to trust in it, and to hope in you. We love you, God, and we pray these things in Jesus' name.